Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, before I, I get stuck in this morning, I just wanted to say a huge thank you. Um, I think we have mentioned it in the service, but in case we haven't, um, as many of you know, Sterling really rose to sort of the challenge of sending aid and help to us during that unrest in KZN. And we were wonderful recipients of a a nice truck full of food that we were able to get into some children's homes, some old age homes, uh, many folk who basically some of their um, food supply just was, was uh, shut down for those few days. And so I just want to say a massive thank you to you and for your generosity. And, and then also just to say I, I've had such a great time these last few days being able to spend time with some of your leaders, to be able to spend time with Matt and Marina. It's just been wonderful to hear the God stories of SBC, and I count it a privilege to uh, consider you guys our mates, to be in partnership with you in the gospel, and so I, I really am I'm humbled to be able to have this opportunity to preach. Um, I was joking in the first service that I know uh, I don't necessarily always look like a preacher. I've got earrings and all sorts, and uh, I had one moment um, recently in our church where we were streaming live and I went to take my mask off and it got stuck in an earring and I had to ask my wife to come and untangle it and it was a rather embarrassing moment. But I have a background in music. I used to be in a band and uh, we did many shows here in East London. And uh, so it's just, uh, East London is actually dear to my heart. I was saying to my friend who I flew down with on Wednesday, I really love this city. It's a beautiful city. And I want to encourage you, and this isn't even part of what I'm sharing this morning, but I want to encourage you, would you drive through your city from time to time and think of yourself as a tourist? Think of, as if you've just landed in some city in some other part of the world and take note again of the greenery and the beach and, and the vibrancy of the city and the life of the city and the different wonderful attributes that East London has. And, and be amazed again at just how beautiful this place is. God has blessed you, and God has given you a call and a mandate to be part of His body that He is building here, uh, and uh, I would encourage you to count it a privilege. Well, this morning, I, I am privileged to kind of tuck in with the series that you guys are part of in the book of Mark and looking at Jesus, looking at this magnificent, wonderful display of God in flesh and what he says to us through the scripture. So if you have your Bibles, won't you open please with me to uh, chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 18 and we will go into chapter 3 to verse 6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came, to, came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast? while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of the grain. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They really are the fun police, these Pharisees. eh? (laughs) And he said to them, Have you read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. Which, is, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, They said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord God, for the privilege of being a people who get to open your word and to have you speak into our hearts here in the 21st century on the east coast of Africa and that it would move us, it would galvanize us, it would produce a fortitude within us to face these crazy days with a resilience and with a joy as we've already heard today, a joy of the Lord. That is our strength. For that we are truly grateful. Amen. Well, friends, there's so much in this passage that we could look at, but I really just want to look at three kind of themes that pop out, certainly in the first part of this passage, and that is of the bridegroom, the garment, and the wineskins. The bridegroom, the garment, and the wineskins. By way of introduction, though, let me just make a few comments. I've had the wonderful privilege of growing up in church life. Uh, right from a young age, been very much involved in church. My, fa- my parents uh, were really just a great, great uh, example to me. They, they didn't live a Christianity that was different on a Sunday to a Monday, right? I think that's, I, I'm a pastor now, and I have to try to do that really hard with my daughter. She's a PK. And part of what makes a PK often a PK is that they see, hey, there's something different about you, Dad, on a Monday to Sunday, but my parents were really great like that. They, their faith was, was real. It was out on their, their hearts were on their sleeves. And um, I had the privilege of growing up in that environment. With any group of people that gather, whether it's a, ch- a church or a, a car club or rotary, uh, ultimately the, some cultural distinctives will emerge as they gather over time. Patterns and rhythms of meeting up, how they enjoy each other's companies, you know, shorthand conversations. You know, you can just reference certain things, certain things, even within our Christian culture, that the moment you say something, there's an understanding of what you mean, you know? Uh, I'm trying to think of an example. I suppose like when we talk about the glory of God, you know, many of us just know that that's just a sense of God's presence in our midst. But to an unbeliever, if you were to say the glory of God, if they were to walk in, they might wonder, what is that? Where is it? How does it actually happen? But there's that shorthand conversation that happens with any group of people. Practices, languages, 
It's, it's really an anthropological reality. Any group of people that get together, there will be some cultural commonalities that will emerge. And the church, as I've mentioned, is no different. If you've been part of different churches in your journey with Christ, this is obvious to you. I'm not saying anything new. You will have witnessed the unique flavors of different churches, unique patterns and rhythms, as well as strengths and weaknesses. I know SBC have no weaknesses. That's why I'm here. I'm here to learn so that we can sort out ours. But there are, right? There's no group of people that can say that they've really got their sort of rhythms and everything waxed and sort, sorted. And inherently, this idea of a culture, a culture that emerges out of a group of people, it's, it's a godly mandate. God has given us a, a, a creation mandate and, and called us to tend the garden of this, of this world. And, and when we get together and create culture, that's part of what God has called us to do. Obviously, whether it be in church or in other areas in life, not everybody who develops culture develops it in light of God's mandate. Sometimes it's directly antagonistic to God's original intent. Now, this sermon is not about us dissecting the cultures of this world, but it is about us looking at a moment when Jesus completely upends a crusty legalistic culture of religion back in the day. Religion, what's the deal with religion? Some time ago there was a, a spoken word uh, viral video that went around of a young man talking about how he hated religion but loved Jesus. And actually if you watch the video, it's, it's very well done and, and the overriding message is actually quite beautiful, what he has to say. I, I think I even played it at church because I, I wanted something of the heart to be translated. But the problem with the video that I had was that it, it kind of, perpetuated this idea that religion is bad. Came across a video this last week of a concert that happened in Los Angeles and one of the artists was Justin Bieber. I know you all are big Justin Bieber fans. And it would seem Justin Bieber is attempting to in some way, shape or form follow Christ. And, and at some point in the concert he shared that, you know, he just was so tired of religion. He just wants to love Jesus and love people. Again, I think that the overriding idea of what he's saying is not necessarily bad, but it's, again, pushing this message that religion is bad. Why is that the case? A simple dictionary definition of religion is that religion is the belief in or worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods. That's the definition. If that's the case, well, then Christianity is a great religion because it is the belief in and worship of God Almighty. Additionally, if we read in James's letter in the New Testament, we see what pure biblical religion is. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Essentially, James is saying, hey, good religion is this, that you have compassion for those who are at the bottom rung of the society that you're in and that you set yourself apart for God, that you follow God, that you're obedient to God. That's good, true, biblical religion. I have even been guilty at times of saying, I'm not religious because I have a relationship with God. Now, I know what I'm saying, but I'm also betraying something because I actually am very religious. I religiously adhere to and believe in and worship God Almighty. So I know we can be playing 
with words here. But my sermon today, again, is not a, it's not about culture or playing with words. I do believe that in this passage, we see how Jesus completely annihilates what is essentially religion gone bad. Religion gone bad. He upends this culture that is prevalent in that day and can be prevalent in our hearts today. For some reason, as human beings, we have this horrible tendency of taking beautiful gifts from God and with some sort of arrogance thinking that we can improve on it. And more often than not, our, our improvement of it is not actually for, for it to be better. It's for us to maintain control. It's all about our pride. It's all about our arrogance. It's all about our corrupt attempts to lord over or to maintain control. And from the passage, we see that the Pharisees were trying to do just that. They were part of a religious tradition uh, where they were committed to sort of ring-fencing the beautiful imperatives of God, ostracizing people, pushing people away, making it difficult for the average person to live up to the demands of their religious rules, which ultimately kept them in power. It ultimately made them look holier than everybody else, look holier than everybody else, but they were actually deeply corrupt. Now, thankfully, I hope I'm not an expert at bad religion, but I have experienced enough of church life to know that when what is pure and what is given to us by God gets turned on its head into some kind of man-made system of imperatives and man-made rules, ultimately a house of cards is being built and it will come crashing down. Before you hear what I'm not saying, I want you to hear what I am saying. See, I'm not one of those guys who says that there shouldn't be any rules. I'm not one of those guys who's tried to get out of and wriggle out from under the imperatives of Scripture with regards to how we should live in obedience to Christ. No, when I look at the Scriptures, actually, holistically, I see that God gives us a very serious command throughout Scripture. There's a serious command that comes to us, and that command is that we are to be holy as He is holy. But additionally, when I look through Scripture, I realize that it is impossible for us to do so. But because God is who He is, because of His nature, not only does God bring us a serious command of holiness, at the same time, God gives us a spectacular promise. A spectacular promise. God demands holiness of us. So he gives us Jesus. Augustine is famous for saying that God gives us what he commands of us. So in simple terms, I would say that actually bad religion often comes down to this idea of no obedience to the right things or hyper-obedience to the wrong things. And one either leads to like licentiousness, just kind of living your life uh, with kind of looking to Jesus to help you do whatever it is you want, or hyper-legalism, crusty legalism. Well, it's in this context that Jesus comes in and he upends it. The context that we were reading this morning was not a licentious context. It was this hyper-crusty legalism, these man-made rules. And Jesus comes and he presents to us what it is that should be embodied in the heart of a Christ follower. And I would encourage you, friends, not 
to the words out of my mouth, but to the words of Scripture this morning, would you lean in? Would you lean in to what Jesus is showing these people here in Mark's Gospel? Because if you and I want to be genuine followers of Jesus, if we want to be people who live with the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives, with a power that is not our own, if we want to follow Jesus sincerely, then we need to listen to Jesus. What a shame it would be if we gave even a day, let alone a week, a month, or a year, or years, to living our faith in a way that is not in line with what Jesus is calling us. Wouldn't that be a shame? You guys have a, a beautiful beach, and it would be better to go to the beach than to waste just your time living your life in what you think is in accordance with the way of Jesus, but is not. Lean into the Scriptures. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. He gives us this beautiful picture of what it means to live with that heart that follows Him. So the bridegroom, the bridegroom is in the midst of these people. And just before you read this passage, if you read it a little bit earlier on in chapter 2, you read that the, the scribes and the Pharisees were really cheesed off with Jesus because of who He was eating with, Right? He wasn't happy. Why does he keep company with these people? You know, a meal was a serious thing back then. It was an invitation into friendship. Why was this holy man inviting these, you know, ruffians into his circle of friendship? A meal back then was far more precious than what we enjoy in our fast food culture today. So already they're not happy with Jesus because he is, he's, uh, attacking the sort of foundations of their scaffolding of bad religion because of who he associates with. And straight away Jesus says, I haven't come for you guys. I haven't, I haven't come for you who think that you are so good and so self-righteous. I've come for those who are in need of help. And this is one of the beautiful distinctives of God's grace, friends. Our appreciation of God's grace is directly connected to how deeply we believe we need it. Some years ago, a friend of mine for Christmas gave me a diet book. I did not appreciate that gift at all because I didn't believe I needed it. He clearly saw that I needed it. You wouldn't think that now. I'm doing all right. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you think that you're a really good person, if you think that you don't really need God's grace, but you do need God's help, to just be a little bit of a better version of yourself, then God's grace is never going to change you. It's never going to electrify you. It's never going to galvanize you. It's never going to fortify your heart. You're never going to be enamored with it, blown away by it. Do you know you need God's grace? These guys didn't know they needed God's grace. Jesus was telling them, I'm here for people who are going to understand my grace. And then on to, into, into the passage that we read this morning where the question comes to Jesus with regards to why are you eating while all of us are fasting? They were upset because Jesus was having a good time at the table. His conduct to them seemed inappropriate. They revered John the Baptist actually. They saw him as this sort of austere man even though he was a recluse. But yeah, you've got Jesus accepting invitations to meals. He's playing with children. He's enjoying social gatherings. 
You know, when I look at my church upbringing, to my shame at times, I actually can relate to these disciples of John and the Pharisees. Where I would look at people, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s in church culture, and there was a certain way you were supposed to be if you were a church person, right? There was certain music you listened to, there were certain things you did or didn't do. You certainly never watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Masters of the Universe. There was a very clear line about what was accepted and what wasn't. And I, I, I did grow up with a little bit of that kind of legalistic idea of kind of what makes you acceptable here and not, to my shame. There were certain things you did or you didn't do which determined whether you were a Christian or not. Certain external things. There was such an emphasis on external living to the detriment of a person's heart sanctified change that God was doing from the inside out. There's nothing new under the sun, we would say. It's this cyclic problem within humanity. And Jesus made it very clear already that His job, His mission was to convert sinners and not to come and compliment the self-righteous. His ministry and His mission was not defined by propping up a corrupt religious system. He wasn't coming into this world to big up the Pharisees and say, well done, good job. No, he came in to, to completely upend it. And this is what brings such great joy about this passage today, is that we see that Jesus' mission, friends, was to bring gladness and not sadness. Gladness and not sadness. I know that that sounds rather simple and pedestrian, but it's beautiful. We live in a world that needs more gladness and less sadness. The real challenge with a legalistic system of religion was that it was incredibly burdensome. Many of the people back then were poor and weighed down by the rules and the regulations that made it impossible for them to obey. The significance of Jesus as, as the bridegroom should not be lost on us today. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 23, verse 4, Jesus tells us that life is not supposed to be a funeral. It should be defined, as a Christian, your life should be defined by a wedding feast. We are the guests and our guests not supposed to have a good time. We must remember that in this culture, the Jews understood marriage to be a significant picture which helped them explain Israel's relationship to God, right? They understood that they were married as a people. They were married to Jehovah. They belonged to Him. And in fact, Hosea's book is a book that really centers on this fact that as a people, they would turn to foreign gods. They would commit spiritual adultery. They were unfaithful to their husband. And we see in the book of Hosea how God loves his adulterous wife and he desires to restore the nation to his favor once again. So prior to this, John has already announced, John the Baptist has announced, Jesus is the bridegroom. Remember the first miracle we see Jesus turning water into wine at that marriage feast. And now, to the surprise of these crusty legalists, Jesus is inviting us to come to the wedding. If we think about it for a minute, we are reminded that actually becoming a Christian is a little bit like a marriage. Romans 7 verse 4, we are told that we belong one to another. It's this great picture of marriage, and it alludes to a deeper relationship 
bad religion, friends, is always just about external actions. It's always about playing a part. It's always about looking good on the outside, but it's not really necessary, necessarily indicative of something that is deep within the heart of a person. When two people get married, it's not just because they have strong feelings for each other. It's not just because they know each other. It's because they actually are deciding to commit themselves to one another to, and to make that commitment known. You know, when I do weddings, it's a given that there's going to be a time when the husband or the future husband, the future wife, are going to say, I do. They're going to affirm their commitment to each other under God and in front of people. The similarity is such that when you and I experience salvation from sin, it involves more than just knowing Jesus. Lots of people know Jesus. Lots of people actually have good theology. And they understand doctrine and they understand how church works. To be a Christian involves far more than just good feelings about Jesus. Salvation comes when a sinner commits himself or herself to Jesus and says, I do. I put my faith and my trust in Jesus. When you and I commit ourselves to Jesus, friends, this is the beauty of salvation. We don't go to God and say, God, would you accept me? Look at my record. Look at how good I am. Would you accept me? That's not being a Christian, friends. Being a Christian is going to God and saying, God, I know, I know that I'm not worthy. Would you accept me because of the record of your son? And I put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Now we're accepted by God. That's the beauty of this salvation. It's the beauty of this commitment that would be seen in the same light as that of a marriage. When we use this analogy, married to Christ, life becomes a wedding feast, friends, in spite of your trials and difficulties. We have to recapture. I, I love what you said this morning about joy. Joy is different to happiness. We can, even, we can even experience the joy of the Lord when our lives are falling apart. We can. Something supernaturally magnificent about the joy of the Lord. On a quick side note on this point, they asked the question, why do you, then, uh, why do, why do you um, still fast? Or the question would be to us, why do we still fast? That was something that was being asked. In verse 20, there's actually a hint that Jesus is not going to be with them forever. Jesus is going to go to his death. He's going to rise again and he's going to ascend to heaven. And we know from this account that Jesus was essentially suggesting that in his absence from earth, we should replace the feast, that we shouldn't replace the feast with the funeral. He wasn't suggesting that. He was simply pointing out, friends, that occasionally fasting would be an appropriate thing for us to do. However, joyful celebration should be norm, the normal experience of a Christian. So then what about the garment and the wineskins? Well, just before the passage, we read that Jesus reminds us He came to save sinners and not call the self-righteous, right? From verse 18, we see that he is the bridegroom. He's come to bring gladness and not sadness. And now here Jesus speaks of this garment and the wineskins. And we understand again that Jesus is affirming that he's come to introduce the, the, the new and not simply patch up the old. He's introducing a new way to be human. New way to be human. For those of you who are Switchfoot fans, that was a, a quote from one of their songs. 
This was the beginning of an inauguration into a new way to relate to God, a new way to live out our religious life with peace and faith in God, obeying God, living a lives where everything we do is as worship unto Him. We must understand that, that actually these Pharisees and, and scribes weren't completely unimpressed with the teachings of Jesus. They certainly didn't like it when Jesus contradicted them. But on other issues, they were quite happy with the idea that maybe they could incorporate some of the teachings of Jesus into their religious tradition. And that is not uncommon to experience in the world today. Where many people feel, well, like, I like a little bit of, um, of this kind of Eastern religious tradition. And some of the, the words of Jesus are really, are really powerful. And I'd love to kind of patch them together. Some of these religious leaders back then were happy with a bit of compromise between Pharisaic Judaism mixed with the best of what Christ had to offer. And in simple terms, Jesus says, there is folly in what you're doing. It doesn't work. He tells them that it would be like taking patches out of a new garment, sewing it into an old garment. For starters, you would end up ruining the new garment because you just cut it up. But additionally, when the old garment is watch, washed, the patches would, would shrink. They would rip away and ruin the garment in its entirety. The best of the new and, and the old get destroyed together. Now, pastorally, friends, I've got to say this is so prevalent in the world today. There are so many people who desire in our world today, and you might even have friends like this, who desire to have some kind of spirituality in their lives. They don't mind actually being spiritual but not religious. Or, you know, they'll, they'll come up with some kind of terminology to express their desire to have some connection with something that's transcendent. There's actually a new kind of thing in the world today I'm, I'm sure many of you heard of it of, of people who are deconstructing they, they, they're getting rid of some of the things that they've, they've come to sort of see as the norm and, and if we could just think about this for a minute if, if there is a person out there who and there are uh, who believes that this world is as a result of an accidental collocation of atoms it's an accident this world is here because of an accident you are here because of an accident there's no real rhyme or meaning or purpose to your life well then it only makes sense that every institution in this world whether it be marriage or morality or governments or economies are all socially constructed over time whoever was at, in power at a certain time basically constructed certain institutes uh, institutions to benefit themselves to keep them in power governments in instituted certain kinds of governments whether it's socialism or democracy or communism ultimately to benefit them and so if that is the case and if there's no rhyme or reason behind this world well then it only makes sense to deconstruct all of that and reconstruct what is now going to benefit us today and we see this even in places like america where they're calling for things like the defunding of police and the reason behind that the philosophy behind that is that we've constructed morality we've constructed justice we've constructed these things that you can and can't do and so therefore those systems are irrelevant we must get rid of them there is no moral lawgiver 
Sorry, it's a little bit of a philosophical rant, but I'm getting somewhere. And I sympathize with that person. I sympathize with them because if they really don't believe in Jesus, well, at least they're being honest about what they believe, right? At least they're following it through. The problem is, friends, is that this cultural temperature at the moment of deconstructing everything can have, can infiltrate the church and can infiltrate the beautiful truths of what the Bible teaches us, much like what the Pharisees were doing, trying to take bits and pieces whilst holding on to power. Many people don't like some of the really difficult things about Christianity. Some of the main, main things that people don't like is the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only love. They don't like the supernatural nature of Christianity. They'd much rather that Jesus rose again kind of metaphorically. They don't like that. They want to get rid of that. They don't like the sexual ethic of Christianity. They don't like the fact that the sexual ethic of Christianity is a man married to a woman. They don't like that. So they want to get rid of it. They want to deconstruct it. Friends, it's a very dangerous and slippery slope. And the only way to maintain this kind of deconstruction is to declare that the Bible is not the Word of God. To take pieces and patch it together. We can all agree that many people have done many things in the name of the church over the years. But when we look at the Scriptures, when we look at the Scriptures in its entirety, it brings alignment, brings truth, brings justice. Pharisees and people like the Pharisees will always be looking for a way to get a little bit of Jesus and add a little bit of legalism. Get a little bit of Jesus, add a little bit of licentiousness. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Eastern mysticism, a little bit of Jesus. But Jesus says that you can't just add patches to the garment. You will lose the patches and you will lose the garment. Additionally, Jesus says that he gives us this picture of putting unfermented wine into an old brittle wineskin. As soon as that wine begins to ferment and the gases form, the old wineskins would burst and you would lose both the wine and the wineskins. Friends, Jesus is our Savior, our Messiah. He's come to usher in a new way. The plan was never, the plan of Christ was never to unite the old with the new. Was never to take that old sacrificial system, that old, old mosaic economy and unite it with a new covenant. It was never that. It was always to bring in the new. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, a new covenant is established. And now the law is not this external thing. It's not about an external act that we have to adhere to. It's about the law being written onto our hearts and us finding union with Christ. Obviously, the beauty of this is that we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and in the, in the finished work of Christ. And when we do that, God is now free to put His Holy Spirit in you, giving you the power, giving you the strength to fulfill the righteousness of the law, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Will you ever be perfect this side of eternity? I'm afraid not. Will you ever be sinless this side of eternity? I'm afraid not. But there is a strong possibility that with the power of the Holy Spirit, you will sin less. And you will grow more and more from one degree of glory into the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Sterling Baptist, this, this is a great reminder to us that the salvation that Christ offers us is not a partial patching up of one's life. You are given a whole new road of righteousness. It's given to you. To follow Christ is not this religious sect of mixing the old and the new. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the old in the new. Think about an acorn. There's two ways that an acorn will die. One is, is that you can take a hammer and you can smash it. The other is that you can put it into the ground. It will die, it will die but ultimately it will fulfill itself. It will fulfill itself in the fact that an oak tree will grow. In both instances, the destruction of the acorn happens. But in the second instance, the acorn is destroyed by being fulfilled. Everything that preceded Jesus, the prophecies, the archetypes, the demands of the law of Moses, were all fulfilled in Jesus. At Calvary, we saw the end of the law because of this perfect sacrifice offered once and for all for the sins of the world. I mean, we should stop right there and we should say, Lord, what joy would fill my heart if that truth would just be reminded, would, would be exploded in my heart each and every day. At Calvary, we saw the end of the law once and for all. When you and I trust in Jesus, we become part of a new creation. And there are always new experiences. Again, if you have walked with the Lord for many years, you will know that there are often new seasons where God does something new, where God does something fresh, where God upends maybe something where we've gotten a little bit crusty. And He brings in a new emphasis, a new heart. All so that the lampstand that is placed here at SBC of this local body and other local bodies around the world would burn brightly with the life and love of Jesus. Wouldn't it be sad if we as a church collectively continued to hold on to dead religious tradition when the living spiritual truth of Jesus is always available to us by the power of His Holy Spirit? One commentator says, why cherish the shadows when the reality has come? In Jesus Christ, we have fulfillment of all that God has promised. I want to encourage you as I close this morning. At SBC, and, and I, this is an encouragement for what you are already doing. I can see it all over you. I can see it all over this church. Would you be encouraged to let Jesus determine your culture? To let Jesus lead the way of your culture. And that might even mean that from time to time you would be accused like he was. People will be confused at the graciousness and the love and the kindness. Without letting go, and this is the second thing, would you... Would you let the culture that Jesus produces in this church be defined by truth and by grace? By truth and by grace. You need both. God is doing an amazing work in this church. God is doing an amazing work in your life, even if you don't know it. And I'd encourage you to allow 
God to fill you with His life, His love, His kindness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You, Lord God, that You are here with us in our midst. We thank You, Lord God, that You lead the way. I pray right now, Lord, for each and every person here. I pray, Father God, that You would fill them again afresh and anew with the power of Your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that maybe in areas where some of that love has gotten a bit dull, where some of that, that joy in the truth of who you are has gotten a little bit dull. I pray, Lord God, for life to come rushing in in the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord God, for your power. I pray, Lord God, for boldness and courage. I pray, Lord God, that each and every person here, where, where they find themselves, whatever work they're doing, whatever, whatever um, uh, environment they're in, I pray, Lord God, that that without even opening their mouths, yet they would open their mouths, that it would be seen that these people are children of God. I pray, Lord, that there would be something significant and different. I pray that whatever is done would be done as unto the Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that all of our life is worship. And when we worship you, when we lift up your name, you draw people unto yourself. I pray, Father, that as they gather as a church through these difficult times, the beauty of being able to gather and worship, Lord God, to be able to see the glory of God outworked in each other's lives, in the diversity that is in a room like this, I pray that that would have a, a magnificent impact in each person's life. They would see the glory of God, they'd be moved by the glory of God, and they therefore would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steve, for that wonderful encouragement. Something that stood out to me just as we move into a time of worship now is that um, when we realize our need for Him, even as believers, that's when He responds. It's when we feel self-sufficient, when we feel like we're okay, we're depending on ourselves, that's when he's distant. And so we're going to sing a powerful worship song now in response to God. And I want you to be prayerful around what Steve's challenged us in today. Maybe there's some legalism that sneaks in easily. Be open-hearted before God. Say, Lord, reveal that to me. I don't want to be self-dependent, and I don't want to be trusting in old things that are not of you. Pour your spirit into me and bring new life. There's life already in you. And the prayer is, Lord, we need you. So let's respond to him now. Let's stand.
Yes, Lord, it's you that we need more than anything else. There's nothing that this world can offer that can compare to you. You are our safe place. You are the only one who can satisfy. And so our heart's response to you as a church this morning, Lord, is yes, come. We want you, Lord. We need you. Come and minister to us, challenge us, call us to wholehearted living before you. Holy Spirit, will you bring to our minds again and again throughout this week the areas that you are challenging us in. And may we walk together as we advance this gospel for your kingdom in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, that's the end of the service. Um, I'm sure you've got lunch uh, that's uh, <laughs> needing to enter the tummy soon. But if you're wanting to hang around and chat for a little bit under the tent, you're welcome to. But we will see you next week. Stay safe.